Previously, on the bookening... Next time I see someone doing something shameful, I'll tell them that their cheeks need to suffer variation of color. <laughs> Color, <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it? Uh, Charlotte. Is that how you pronounce her name? Charlotte? <laughs> I'd probably just call her Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte? <laughs> uh, Charlotte Lucas. What do we think about her? Smart, dumb, sympathetic, unsympathetic? Do we like that she marries Collins? Do we think we're supposed to like that she marries Collins? Well, there's a lot to be said about that, right? It's the first marriage of the book. And isn't it the first? Yeah. yeah. It's the first marriage of the book. And it's Charlotte being opportunistic. And you don't know how it's going to work out for anybody else. You don't know how it's going to work out for... Uh, you do because it's it's a book that's going to end well. But um, you don't know. Is it going to work out well for Lizzie that she passes on Mr. Collins because she's committed to happiness? Committed to marrying a man that she can respect or not marrying at all, knowing that she's risking being turned out on the street, potentially. So Lizzie, obviously, she despises it at first. She's scandalized, maybe, is the better way to say it than despised. despises. So she's scandalized by Charlotte's um, willingness to, to settle. Um, Charlotte's lack of idealism or romanticism. Yeah. And uh, it definitely sets up a contrast for uh, for how things work out. And uh, th- things don't they don't work out great for Charlotte, but she also doesn't end up with Wickham. So I'm not sure what else to say about it. Yeah, is your question, should we despise her or feel sorry for her? Well, do you think that we should despise or feel sorry for her? I don't think we should feel sorry for her. She yeah. knew exactly what she was walking into. She chose what she thought was the lesser of two evils. Yeah, that's it. I think my my sense is that this is Jane nodding to something that actually happened quite often, that you have a lady who wasn't going to be the object of Darcy or Bingley's courtship, and so she had to find someone, and she wanted a husband, and she knew that... She wanted security. She wanted to be yeah. provided for. Here was Mr... Collins and she went for it. <laughs> I don't know what else to say really about her. And you see, well, she's, um, we know she manages it well. She's got that room set up, the end, uh, and all she that manages stuff. it. She manages it well in two senses, right? She, she manages to keep herself from being thoroughly annoyed with Mr. Collins, and she manages to handle it all in a graceful and respectful sort of way. Yeah, it seems like she's going to be a genuinely good wife for Mr. Collins, which speaks she's the world of her. going to cover his nakedness, going to yeah. improve him as best as somebody could. They're not going to be happy in the way that Elizabeth and Darcy or Jane Collins is incapable of... Yeah, but the question is, is um, which is more realistic, Charlotte and Collins or Darcy and Elizabeth? 
What's the answer, Mr. I don't know. Question asking right? guy. So you have here Collins and <laughs> man, Collins and Charlotte, who uh, could very well have had a marriage exactly like the Bennetts, if Charlotte wanted to be hateful and despise her husband. And you don't get the sense that that's how things are going to work out. One of the differences is that Charlotte isn't deceived going in about who she's marrying, right? Mr. Bennett was. He thought he was getting something, and he got something completely different, and he was disappointed. And Charlotte isn't going to face any kind of letdown with Colin. She knows what she's getting, and she's made up her mind to make the best of it. And that means being a good wife. And so part of being a good wife is encouraging her husband to take long walks every morning and to be out in the garden for his good health and to set up a corner of the uh, the house for her that he's not likely to be in to trouble her. Yeah. And you could say that that's uh, a nasty thing for her to do, but I don't think it is. I think it's a, I think it's a gracious thing for her to do. I'm not married, but every married couple, godly Christian married couple that I've ever observed does all kinds of stuff like that. They just find ways to make it work. And sometimes it's very pragmatic. You know, yeah. sometimes it's we don't go to restaurants together because you're obnoxious when you go to, you know, it's it's Do, you're going to say something to the waiter and I'm going to be annoyed with you and. I'm going to get, so let's just not do that. Here's an idea. Let's not do that. Here's an idea. We fight every time we do the dishes together. How about we don't do the dishes together? How about we divide some stuff up differently? Of course, there's a, a, a an extreme of that that's awful. You've got your man cave and you've got your, I don't know what the the rest of the house really is, is the other <laughs> yeah. side of that, and, and your man, which is what Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Bennett, Mr. Bennett has a man cave, and he goes and he lives in his man cave. That's very different than being shrewd about protecting yourself from the things about your your husband that that yeah. are that bother you, so that you can better love him and care for him and be respectful to him. Well, yeah, when Elizabeth visits um, the Collins. Collinses. The Collinses. Yeah. I think it's the first real shock to her pride in her prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> because she keeps wanting Char- um, her friend to be in on the joke with her. Like, this is. And she won't. And she won't. She refuses. They don't get time alone to make fun of Collins. And it's a, it's a boring marriage, but I don't think it's going to be. And, and Lizzie grieves that she's not going to be able to have the friendship or relationship with Charlotte that she ha- once had. <clears throat> she also leaves sort of wondering. She doesn't wonder if Charlotte took the better portion. She knows she could never have done what Charlotte did. Yeah. But she does leave questioning her own desires and sensibilities, I think. I think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, so when, when like an academic feminist reads this book, this is a part they hate. Mm-hmm. Because they want to see this as being where society, she had no other choice. She had to marry. If she didn't, she would be stranded and abandoned when her father and her mother died. She's the tragic and victim so she of had to, society. Yeah, she fell prey to this, and so she had to marry Collins. I think there's a more fair and even more interesting way of reading it that I think is more accurate to the novel, which is that, no. I think Jane Austen is saying this is how most marriages are. They're this boring and so what? What Charlotte did was she decided she wasn't going to be a victim. 
She went out and found herself somebody who would provide for her. And nobody doubts that Mr. Collins is going to do the utmost to fulfill what he perceives to be his obligations. That's all he does. It's just his foolish sense of his obligations is off-the-wall comical. Well, the other thing is I think probably most, without having read any of them, I'd say most modern kind of feminist scholars talking about this probably act like, oh, what a tragic time when women had to make these decisions. Well, guess what? People have to make these kinds of decisions all All the time. time. To this day, for money reasons, for attractiveness reasons, for sex reasons, for you got me pregnant reasons, for it's not. The difference is that now we don't have any sense of honor about it. So uh, Charlotte could marry Collins and be reasonably confident that Collins would be her husband to the day she died and at least provide and care for her, whereas women making these kinds of decisions now have no such security. Mm-hmm. If if we were to make this into a modernized novel, Lydia and Wickham, everybody would just be wondering when the divorce was going to happen. But that's... nobody would have bothered forcing them to get married. Yeah. They would have just rescued Lydia away and said, stop, a young man, generally speaking. But I would, uh, I would, I submit to you that if you wrote the modern version of Pride and Prejudice, it would be very easy to find an exactly, almost exactly comparable situation for you could you could write a modern Charlotte Lucas who just, I don't know, you know, not to be a jerk, but maybe she's just not pretty, or maybe she's something, maybe she's lots of things, maybe she doesn't have money. There are lots of people that settle, or mm-hmm. that make the best decision that they can. You know, not everybody gets oh yeah to be elizabeth and darcy and maybe not everybody should i don't know that jane austen is necessarily saying that charlotte did anything wrong what people need to actually do is is see uh charlotte as an example for them in marriage if you feel like you've you're disappointed and jilted in love and marriage you know what charlotte does is admirable she respects her husband, she knows her place, and she makes herself content with her circumstances. She's not bitter. Not to say she doesn't have her moments of regret, you know. Yeah. She's <clears throat> human, but... It's easy to forget that the whole reason this story is effective with Darcy and Elizabeth is because it's uncommon. Mm-hmm. That's why we like to read it, because this doesn't usually happen to people. What usually happens to people is exactly what happens here with the Collins. You know, or the you, Bennets. Yeah, or the Bennets, or the Gardeners. You you get the sense that mm-hmm. their courtship wasn't some windswept ordeal. It's no, but the very... Gardeners just have a very healthy, good, yeah. happy marriage. And so the point is, is you don't need to have this romance happen mm-hmm. in your life, and it's silly to wait for it, young ladies. Right? Yeah, young ladies. <laughs> and people get married for all kinds of reasons, good and bad, and. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically give us a list of reasons to get married for, does it, Pastor Menzel? <laughs> well, if you're burning with lust okay. and you want to have babies. All right, all right, check, and, check. And uh, you want to have intimacy. Right. There you go. That's it, companionship, a helper. It's companionship, uh, babies, and... Protection that? from sexual sin. So those You're are burning up. Those are good reasons to get married. And so Mr. Bennett was burning up and he had a hot chick that was interested and he married her and you know, that's a good reason to get married 
he was foolish. He entered into it as the wedding liturgy says, foolishly and unadvisedly. <laughs> but he should have made the best of it. Mm-hmm. Look, what what Charlotte says to uh, uh, to Lizzie early on in the book. Uh, you remember that scene? Maybe it's at the first ball where Darcy insults uh, Lizzie, and and Charlotte says, "Listen." Nobody really knows what they're getting when they get married. Nobody really knows. We're all so busy, you know, trying to make a good show that it's just not, it's just impossible to really know who you're marrying until after it's all done. And then hopefully Providence smiles on you and, you, you know, you, you do your best to make the best of it and, and go from there. And I think that's what we, what we see. We have all of these different marriages, the, the, uh, the Phillipses. Water found its level. They were an even match, and they were both fools. The gardeners, water found its level. They're an even match. They're both good, wholesome, wise, kind-hearted people. The Bennets, you know what? Water found its level because as much of a fool as she was, he, he was that much of a monster. And they didn't work to make the best of it. He didn't work to make the best of it, and it's on him. Charlotte and Collins, all pragmatic and, you know, that's what they got. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. And they're making the best of it. And life's hard, princess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Jane Austen's the, you know, the god of this universe, Jane and Lizzie both get wonderful matches. Water yeah. found its level. They don't have as hard a time making the best of it. But the reason they don't have as hard a time making the best of it is because they have good character. Yeah. And and so so does their so do their men. It's easy to get up, uh, get drawn into these new modern romances and even novels where it's all about self discovery and it's all about finding your soulmate. And I think Jane is Jane Austen here poking not not even necessarily poking fun of at that as this is not a part of her world. Yeah, she's just she's very down to earth and yeah. and practical. So you have all these marriages, and we'll see this also in Anna. Well, can I spoil what's coming? Sure. In Anna Karenina, you'll see you have this one marriage that's deteriorating and then the adultery that happens. But around that, you have all these other marriages that you're supposed to compare it to that is like in contrast and relief to it. Mm -hmm. So you have Jane and you have Elizabeth, but then all around them and their relationships are all these others that are in contrast and relief to it that I think is supposed to tell us just as much as... Darcy and, and none so. of this, by the way, should be taken to say that uh, Elizabeth was a fool to turn down no Mr. Collins. No. She knew she couldn't make him happy and that she he wouldn't make be her happy. happy with him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it often works out the way that uh, it works out in this story, that God, God honors that kind of uh, wisdom and discretion. And it takes faith to be patient. That isn't to say that there are a lot of people out there that are waiting for Mr. Perfect or Mrs. Perfect to come along and they don't know themselves well enough to know that they're not who they think they are. They're not Darcy or they're not Elizabeth and they need to have a, a, a good enough understanding of themselves to realize when when a good man comes along who takes interest that they should go for it. Yeah. But um, certainly Elizabeth was no fool for being patient yeah. and being willing to, to leave herself in God's hands with turning down Collins. Anything else worth saying about Mr. Collins just as a character? If you're not working hard to see yourself in each of these characters, you're you're a fool. And I see myself 
in Mr. Bennett. I see myself in Wickham. I see myself in Collins. Yeah. It's embarrassing. It is really embarrassing. <laughs> <clears throat> I was realizing how many times in public you've tried to impress people and be this ingratiating <laughs> toad. And it's just, you're like, man. <laughs> I know the manners of courtliness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am Collins. Wow. <laughs> You know, I have to say, I didn't get that from the book. I didn't sympathize with Collins at all. I just thought he was a buffoon. I didn't think that I was like Collins. Am I like Collins? No, everybody knows you're Darcy. <laughs> if, if ever there were a Darcy, it's If ever you. there were a Darcy. Uh, Jake, you're making my cheeks suffer variation in color. <laughs> How are we Collins? I mean, he's an obsequious, sniveling, snobby little worm i don't know a lot of people that are really as bad as him yeah well when you put it like that actually i don't i don't see much cause of myself after all i will say he seems a little bit more like a cartoon character than a lot of the characters i think he is realistic and he is sympathetic in some ways but he's fairly over the top not that there aren't people like that. You see this kind of character play out in 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 the church all the time. You have these guys that come um, from broken homes, from broken families, and they've never seen what manly manliness looks like. And so you try to teach them what it means to be a man, what it means to take responsibility, and then they walk around with a hammer thinking everything's a nail, and they think they've learned something. And they're aping what they think manhood is, and they end up looking like Barney Fife instead of like Andy Griffith. And that's what—that's all that Collins is. Collins went to school, and he thinks he, he's learned some manners and some mannerisms and how to deal with people of class, and he, he runs around like Barney Fife. And yeah, Barney Fife is a caricature, but he's not that far off from a lot of people. Yeah, there's one, there's one example in the church. How about academia, Brandon? Oh, academia. You get um, a grad student who comes in and all they do is spend their time trying to pretend, well, and this might hit close to home, trying to pretend they've read books they've never read, trying to pretend they know theorists they've never heard of. Dropping the terms. Yeah, dropping dropping the terms or telling the professors, yeah, I've read your book, you know, and your book was just really, it was so amazing and just eye-opening when it comes to this particular author. So there are students who will look at the professor they're about to have, and then we'll read their books just so that they can ingratiate themselves with them. Or they'll adopt that professor's tone and mannerisms when they write their papers. I mean, and then when you get into actually being adjunct and then finally a, a professor, you're still doing this with the, all the other community, the greats out there. You're trying to put yourself into a circle of people who speak a certain way and have certain mannerisms and go to certain places and do certain things. And so then suddenly, you know, you came from a little small town and I don't know where, but you're all of a sudden um, a vegan. You know, when you grew up around a bunch of carnivores because you, it's just, it's a, here's another example. Um, pick up the latest edition of the New York Times and open to the movie review section and find somebody using a bunch of silly words that they looked up in a thesaurus strung together in a sentence, trying really hard to sound smart. Well, maybe maybe my actual problem, now that I think about it, is that we live in such a world of so many Collins. You don't even see them. I don't even see them because Collins is kind of ubiquitous in the 21st century. Yeah, Collins is a poser. That's what Collins is. Collins is going to write uh, an article and um, 
for a magazine and he's going to try to sound all Tolkien-y or C.S. Lewis-y mm. or he's going <laughs> to or he's going to or he's going to uh, step into the pulpit of a church and st- try to sound like John Piper or he's yeah. going to or Mark Driscoll. So if you're listening to this and you write blog articles where you try to sound like Tolkien then you should stop you should stop you should please don't because we're on to you the yeah. world doesn't need any more people posing to be J.R. Tolkien I mean, yeah. or C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton we could use there's only one G.K. Chesterton so quit Thank trying to like quit, quit trying we're on to you there might be a bunch of Mr. Lucases and stuff that think you're cool but you're not yeah From hear, hear it from the Darcy's and the Elizabeth's you're an idiot if you are a young writer God bless you for imitating the, the masters. masters. Yeah, good By job. By all means, imitate the masters, but grow out of it yep. and develop a voice and style of your own eventually. Because you're, if all you can ever do is be a cheap knockoff parody of, of the greats, then you're not adding anything to the conversation. And if you're a young Christian conservative, then find somebody besides Chesterton or Woodhouse or Lewis. 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 <laughs> to imitate. Yeah, it just does. Steal where nobody else is looking. That's that's the that's the golden principle. That's the, that's the best advice you could possibly get from from this podcast. Steal, Steal where, where nobody, nobody is, looking. Look, is looking. Yep. Steal from Jane Austen, for example. See if you can do a little carving on ivory, as she called her works. Uh, any other characters? I've, there's lots of minor characters. Anything else jump out at anybody? I just liked, personally speaking, or I like in this kind of a novel, the strongly defined minor characters. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And that's something that you yeah. don't see in uh, like 20th century literature as much. You just some a lot of times with a secondary character, you don't get a real strong sense of them. The periphery. And but the fact that the, the peripheral characters all have strong personality types. Mm-hmm. Strong, simple, colorful personalities. You've got Georgiana Darcy who's just completely sweet and you've got the gardeners who are just completely good and you've got lady catherine's daughter who's just wilting away well it's a picture of how revolutionary austin was as far as the novel at the time because before that all you had were these sentimental either sentimental characters or you had the like the picaresque parodies and stuff like that and then suddenly here comes this country girl writing these novels where everybody seems very real it's it's the birth of the realist movement in literature so yeah but the right kind of realism where realism doesn't mean uh everybody dies and everything ends in horrible tragedy because the world's just one big chaotic mess it's a realism that's rooted a realism that has a a creator's i think a creator superintending everything that happens for good even in the bad things that happen Maybe that's taking it a little too far, but I don't I don't think it is in Austin. No, I think that's right. And that's a good point because when we think of realism today, we've all we all think like Cormac McCarthy mm-hmm. and these guys. But there's nothing realist about pessimism. That's all that is. It's just a pessimistic view of reality. And so she's a realist in the sense that she sat and she observed and then she very accurately portrays what she saw. 
And, and like, and like we've said, you get the sense that she has seen these characters. Yeah, and, mm. and you can't say that she's an optimist or a pessimist. Yeah. And the wonderful thing is that in order to be realistic, she's willing to acknowledge that people are interesting. People are colorful. So much of quote-unquote realistic literature today is it's draining all the color. It's making things dark and damp and monochromatic but jane austen is willing to allow for the fact that there might be somebody as crazy and over the top as mrs bennett and in fact we've all known somebody like that and there might be someone as sarcastic as mr bennett and there might be people that are just good like the gardeners and and as a matter of fact i think we could all think of people that are just like that Mm -hmm. but it's almost like if you were to write those characters today even though we're surrounded by them in real life we don't We've been taught not to believe in those kinds of characters. Everything yeah, has to be right. three-dimensional. And what we think of as three-dimensional is just simply flat. Flat. Mm-hmm. Literature that claims to be realism usually says more about the culture that the author was writing from than it does about any reality. kind of reality. So, yeah. And we'll get a lot of examples of that. So stay tuned. <laughs> I really like uh, the se- segments of this podcast where my contribution is to add the one word. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really helpful because as I was talking, I was like, oh, man, I don't have the word to end. <laughs> I hope if I trail off and give it a little space. Yeah, I, don't mind, I don't mind playing that role. I, I, I'm just a word, a word, a word, a word. A word. <laughs> what is the tone of this book? There's a nice standard high school <laughs> high school essay type question. Wait, let me get out my pencil and my blue book. It's playful. That's what I one of the things that I found most surprising and delightful about it the first time I read it. Me too. Um, it's it's light and it's it's serious. It deals with very serious things, but in a comedic sort of way. It's a sort of a classic comedy. Um, if ever there was one, I don't know. Brandon can probably. Tell me, well, a classic comedy is actually this. And it, but, but, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but you could if you wanted. I, I could, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, uh, comedy is uh, like the Divine Comedy by Dante. <laughs> it, it deals with, with serious, serious stuff that everybody faces. Everybody feels these pressures and tensions and can relate to them. Mm-hmm. And, and it does it um, with the spirit of Elizabeth, with a kind of buoyant, um, good, if not entirely good-natured, um, at least very good-humored attitude. What this, uh, now that you've, you're kind of forcing me to do this. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's, let's hear it. That's what this you're is, here this for, is a com- This is comedy in like the vein of Shakespeare. Yeah. The way Shakespeare Absolutely. changed. Shakespeare revolutionized comedy. Before him, comedy was seen as ending on, you start at a low point and end more on a high note. But with comedy, with Shakespeare, you got comedy that was more in this vein of playfulness and lightheartedness. So there's a lot of much ado about nothing in Jane Austen's books. Mm-hmm. And it's, it improves, I mean, it's, she improves on it some. Mm-hmm. So You know, the, the subject matter of this book, relationships and marriage, from a, at a superficial glance, it seems mundane, right? It's not. It's not Tolkien. It's not battling the forces of good and evil. It's the it's the battle that you face every day in your home with loving your wife, loving your kids, 
or you're single and you're looking and hoping and praying for a good match, praying for a husband or a wife. And that's high drama. And and it's serious stuff. And it's actually much closer to the bone than Frodo taking the ring to Mordor. Yeah. But then she then she makes you laugh and she makes you deal with yourself and helps you to understand yourself from <clears throat> I was talking to somebody not long ago about how when they read this in high school, this book taught them how how to think self-critically because of Jane's exposition. She she opens up and she explains for you what people are thinking and what people are feeling. And But man, is she perceptive. Man, is her exposition insightful mm-hmm. and helpful. Not many people can think the way that she thinks. Yeah. And so she teaches you how to think about yourself and about other people and to laugh at yourself and to laugh at the silliness. One of the things that that Lizzie's going to bring to Darcy is the ability to laugh at himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's to, to get back to your uh, whipping post, uh, I think it's good to think of another person that people see as playful, which would be Twain. Yeah. But he's got disdain. Yeah. Twain has disdain. Twain has disdain. <laughs> Boom. He was a poet. I didn't know it. Oh. <laughs> but she has none of that disdain for her characters. Um, there's more hope and more sympathy towards them. Compassion, maybe. Compassion. Yeah, that's the better word. Yeah, I mean, I think the book is A, hilarious. It's just a funny book. And B, it's able to be funny, it's able to be lively, it's able to be buoyant because it exists in a godly universe, basically. I mean, she's able to describe what a happy ending is in a way that I don't think a pagan Because she believes in a happy ending. The world, the universe that God wrote and is writing into existence is in a happy marriage. And it's right. Mm Mm-hmm. So there is something unnatural then about our culture that wants sad, unhappy stories. Well, I mean, today you have everybody like, oh, it's it's got to be dark, you know. I hear the new Batman movie is really dark. Yeah. It's, it's like the word dark is actually a positive adjective. Like, I hear the Star Wars has some really dark stuff, man. And that's just like another way of saying it's cool. And it's, and it's yeah. just like that's so backwards and dumb. It, People are the culture's uh, rebounding though. The Marvel movies. Yep, that's all you have to say. The culture's rebounding. Dot dot dot. The, the Marvel, Marvel movies. movies. Yep. Roll the credits. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. Culture I, swings. I think know? people like the Marvel movies. I think they were a breath of fresh air because they were fun and existed in a slightly moral universe. I don't know. Jane Austen called her books Carvings on Ivory, which I thought was an interesting self-analysis. Just a little one-inch ivory or something like that, two inches thick, right? Right. Miniatures, they call them, maybe? I don't know what they call them. I just know she called her books Carvings on Ivory. She was trying to downplay them and say that they were... I think she was being a little self-deprecating. I mean, I like, I think it's a good description insofar as it means that she was able to get a ton of detail and and intricacy onto a small surface you know she's not telling the story of frodo taking the ring to mordor or or of the experience of world war ii or anything like that but um odysseus's journey across 
But I think she was being self-deprecating in a bad way if, if what she meant was that her books didn't have universal application because I think that they do. I agree. Same here. <laughs> does Jane Austen's book feel, does, does Jane Austen's world feel idealistic, idealized? I think we've addressed this to some extent already when we've talked, when we talked about the Collinses. Um, the temptation would be to say, yeah, there is no Darcy and there are no Bingleys, but that's just not true. She's, yeah. it's a very, I don't think it's idealized. I think, um, you know, the most idealized side of it is that Darcy is, you know, billionaire and he is marrying somebody who has no fortune and who has a nasty family. But he's, you know, he's a Boaz type character, and we know that Boaz is a real person who really existed. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's not far fetched. That kind of thing can happen, and it does happen, and, and it's beautiful when it does. Yeah, there's theatrics to it, and there's drama to it, but sometimes. Shockingly, there is to real life as well. <laughs> so, well, I think that's one of the, actually the things that I really appreciate about the book is that it is just a good story, which might sound like a really stupidly obvious thing to say, but a good story and a good <clears throat> piece of literature, to my mind, are not always the same thing. I mean, you go to any supermarket, you go to Walmart, you can find a book that will have a good story in it, and that it'll move. You'll want to turn the pages. It'll have a plot that draws you through with a mystery. You know, what happened to Gone Girl? Did Gone Girl, where did Gone Girl go? You know? <laughs> the Gone Girl gone. <laughs> and then, you know, you can read, like, our one of our next books is going to be Dostoevsky. And that's not something that necessarily makes me want to turn. It's not what I'd call a page turner. <laughs> it's a good book. It's got good insight. It's got wisdom. It's got things that will stick with you and maybe even change you. Things that will move you in a way that Gone Girl is probably not going to. Uh, but, but Pride and Prejudice, I would say, is both a masterpiece of literature and also just a page turner. It's a good story. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's yeah. a will they, won't they. You know, it works on it works on that basic kind of romantic comedy level. I'm not trying to denigrate any of the stuff that's really good about it. I'm just saying, in addition to all the stuff we've talked about, it also has a few really basic qualities. Well, there's... What it comes down to is you want the storyteller, the author, to be someone you would like to hear the story told by. Mm. Right. That, in the end, really does matter, <laughs> believe it or not. Right. <laughs> and so you can have a good story, but if the author's not someone you want to hear tell the story, mm. then, then who cares? Right. I read a quote that I think was in the introduction of my book um, where I forget who it was, but he was saying, you know, I, I shouldn't care if um, – Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or anybody thought questioned one of my actions, um, but if Jane Austen questioned one of my actions, I would stop that in my tracks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I get that. I have sort of the same sentiment toward her. I trust her very much. I trust her judgment. I trust her insight into human nature, and I trust to a degree her compassion. She's one of those people that if you don't agree with her or if something sticks in your craw— your immediate thought, or my immediate thought at least, is what's wrong with me, right? not what's wrong with her, because she must know something. You know, if she thinks that Charlotte was wise to marry Mr. Collins, then I must 
have an overinflated view of what marriage constitutes as an for marital example, felicity of marital felicity, marital felicity conjugal yeah. felicity yeah to your point about the good story there is absolutely nothing wrong with a good story mm-hmm. <laughs> um and in fact oh no i think this is c.s lewis who said this <laughs> oh, <laughs> in his experiment and criticism one of the he says that at the very least a story should be entertaining the problem is they often stop there Mm-hmm. You know, the first time I read it, I read it really fast because I wanted to get to the end and see them get their happy ending and make sure, you know, that they got their happy ending. And um, not every author that can do that and to be able to keep you turning those pages and also have all this insight is something that's only comparable to Shakespeare. Yeah. This is one of the few books I would commend to you reading yearly. I think it's good to have a set of books that you go back to mm-hmm. over and over again, just because you're not going to get out of this book the first read what you're going to get out of it the second read or the third read or the fourth read. Mm-hmm. It's just good to have a book that you become familiar with like an old friend. So and a book that's going to help you perfect your character. Yeah. I mean, that's what you can't read it and not feel exposed at, at points. And, and it yields different things on each reading. Yeah, like we've talked about already. Right. We've all feel differently about the book this time, but not bored with it. No. No. And I can't imagine that I won't have an entirely different perspective on, I mean, I'm 10 years older than Lizzie now. I was younger than Lizzie the first time I read it. Next time I read it, I'll be, you know. Well, here here you go. Happily married to Mrs. Darcy. In uh, On the fifth year anniversary of this podcast, Nathan, Mm -hmm. we should revisit Pride and Prejudice. That is a fantastic idea, Brandon. We're Done. Jake doesn't like it. Maybe tenth year. Tenth. There oh, you the tenth year. This podcast. He's, he's just got more Austinian hope. He's got more hope. <laughs> well, we've got a little time to talk about the movies. <laughs> oh boy. Yeehaw. Yeehaw. <laughs> Fortunately, I haven't seen either of them in a long time. Uh, I just saw the BBC recently. I've not <clears> seen the the Kara Knightley since like two thousand five, two thousand six, around the time it came out. <laughs> Anybody want to say anything about the movies? Uh, the BBC is a good story, but you don't get Austin telling it to you, and so it's lacking. In what ways are, is it lacking? You don't get her wit in the way that she crafts a sentence and the little observations she'll have. You realize watching the BBC, as good as it is, that there is something to being had a story told to you versus mm-hmm. seeing it. Yeah, You so. also miss most of... Well, you miss all of the interior, interior monologues. I'm watching the yeah. BBC version again in preparation for this. I just realized without a huge chunk of what Lizzie's thinking in between Darcy giving her that letter and yeah. Darcy proposing yeah. again, you just not only do you miss the wit and the excellence with which Austin tells the story, but you also just miss part of the story. You miss that inner monologue, the dialogue that the characters have. And then, you, yeah, like I think people that think that it's okay just to watch the movie, like just to watch the Lord of the Rings, whatever. You're missing the whole, a whole world of the writer, what they bring to the story right? and the way that they tell you a story. And um, I don't know how to defend it or how to explain it much beyond just watch the movie and then go back and read the book and you'll see the difference. And I think that making movie after movie of Pride and Prejudice is fine, but one thing you'll never hear anyone say is that I wish someone else would write. Pride and Prejudice. 
Like mm-hmm. a, yeah. And you would never hear anyone say, I wish someone else would write The Lord of the Rings. That's right. Right. If the movie becomes a substitute for reading the book, then let the movie be damned. Burned. And especially that 2006 one. Oh, oh the 2005 my. version so bad. is so bad. Let's just talk about the fact that I'd like to... Well, she's not dead. I'd like to beat the director of that movie over the head with Kara Knightley's Shin bone. cheekbones. <laughs> uh, it just becomes this wet mass. That's what I remember. It. It's just a wet. It's always, it's always like raining. Somebody just well, took, what, you, yeah. what you've done, what they did was they replaced Darcy and Elizabeth for Lydia and Wickham and then had it work out yeah. beautifully for them. It's a windswept romance. And you don't even... I I did see that version of of the movie before I had ever read Pride and Prejudice or seen anything else. And I had no idea when I watched it what in the world happened and why Elizabeth and Darcy ever ended up together. It just didn't make any sense to me at all. Well, that movie has plenty Except of... Except for it was a windswept romance, and they were bewitched body and soul. Yeah. They were yeah. bewitched body and soul, <laughs> mostly body. The movie's mortal sin is Darcy. Darcy in that yeah. movie sucks. I mean, he's just terrible. Because, I mean, the guy... <laughs> he's just emo. He is emo. I mean, he's just... He's carried along by his feelings, and... Well, yeah. Mopey, and drab, and... With his sad puppy dog eyes. Well, and he is from the first moment. There's never a moment where, when you don't think that he's just this lovable guy. There's never a moment where you would think of him being proud or prejudiced, where you would judge him the way that Elizabeth judges him. There's no reason for Kara Knightley to judge him wrongly in yeah. the in the movie version. Or to turn. Or to turn. From her judgment. Because... Yeah. Just He's just work. the misunderstood sad boy. Right. Which is what all the women want. Well, and to a certain so. extent, Mr. Thank Darcy. You, Mr. Collins. <laughs> yeah, women do want the misunderstood. You're, you're I flatter myself I understand the ladies. Didn't you're, you're welcome. <laughs> Reverend. <laughs> yeah, you got me. <laughs> well, I did a little gratuitous bow. Nobody could see that. Right, yeah. Brendan, for those of you listening at home, did just do a gratuitous bow. Uh, the Pride and Prejudice 2005 is a piece of crap. Oh, it's so bad. So bad. There's, there's only so many things you can say about something so bad. If, if you have any so doubt, bad. go and just Google the last scene. It's, mm. it's awful. <laughs> you may call me Divine Goddess on Tuesdays. And... Mrs. Darcy. My Mrs. Darcy. <laughs> does, does he really say that? Uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, no, but I think that so last scene bad. is just the fruit of... Uh, I don't know. If you're, if you're listening to this, you're probably a jerk that likes the 2005 version, because most people that I talk to are. But Stop it. Stop it. You're wrong. Stop it. You are wrong. It's terrible. <coughs> it's really well done. It's got nice wind and rain. and I liked a lot of the supporting characters. I thought the but, performances of the supporting characters were pretty good. Donald Sutherland does a great job as Mr. He Bennett. He does. He's... I wish he wasn't so sympathetic. Yeah, but but no, he's nobody's awesome. ever going to make a version where Mr. Bennett's as monstrous as you want him to be. It's true. Um, 
I like the Collins in that film. I like the Collins in that film fine. I think he should have been funny. I mean, that's the other thing about that version. It's that's that's maybe funny. the mortal sin funny. of that version yeah. is he's not. Funny. You don't well. You don't even know that but if you just watched that version and you never read the, read the book, you wouldn't know that the book's intended to be a comedy. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing. It's just so dark and wet. It's dark and it's wet, and, <laughs> and it's all too bad. It's, yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. It's too well, bad and I think it's too bad that and magically. Yay, happy ending. And I remember reading somewhere that they said it, they intentionally said it about, I think, 100 years or 50 years maybe just earlier than Jane Austen said it because they wanted to emphasize the class difference and all this kind of stuff. And I just think it's garbage. It's, that's the word, garbage. <laughs> also, that movie is really bad. Just saying. Just in case you haven't picked up on it. I Zero something else stars. I to say about it, actually. About the movie? Yeah, I uh, lost it in the flow of conversation. Kara Knightley's not bad, actually. Yeah, I, I, I think Kara Knightley's pretty good. If you plugged Kara Knightley into the BBC version, she'd probably do a better. She'd at least be the right age where that other girl's like 49. 40. <laughs> <laughs> and the Jane. <laughs> oh, and Jane. Yeah, I yeah. thought I liked the Jane. I liked the Bingley. I don't remember the Bingley. I much prefer uh, Kelly Riley as uh, Caroline Bingley to the Caroline Bingley of the BBC version. She just has the right amount of hateful smuggishness. And so, so <laughs> in, in your perfect adaptation, who do you cast as Darcy? Oh, man. I've got mine. I gotta say, Colin Firth wasn't bad. You're not allowed to use Colin Firth. No. You're not allowed to use any of the characters. <clears throat> Nathan. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously I cast myself. Uh, I kind of like that guy that played Thorin, actually, quite a bit. Who? The guy that played Thorin in the stupid. Oh, right. Movie. What's his name? Richard Armitage. I knew oh, what yeah. his name was all along. I just didn't want to seem like a jerk that knew what his name was. Why? Because. He comes off as a real tool in those Hobbit movies. <laughs> Therefore, I think he could play. But does he come off sympathetic? When does he come off sympathetic? He doesn't so much in the Hobbit movies, but I tend he could. I, I assume he could probably act his way into our, some sympathy. And in other words, I think when you're when you're when you're the, my philosophy of casting Darcy is Cla- cast, cast him for villain. the first scene, cast a villain. Yeah. And I know who you're going to say because we've had this conversation off air, but. Yeah, it's Alan Rickman. That's Alan Rickman, circa, huh. circa 1992, He kind of got to do that with Snape. So, yeah, I didn't see the Harry Potter films, but um, he did a good job. He, yeah, he he's just a fantastic villain. Yeah, he's easy to hate. He's easy to think. He plays that kind of smug, uh, proud character very well but he can make that sympathetic turn i think yeah he and uh, that's the kind of person that you want he was in a jane austen movie right he's i've in, heard that he's in the emma thompson uh, sense and sensibility yeah, he plays colonel brandon he plays colonel brandon does a good job and somebody when i said that uh, <clears throat> to somebody else they said he, that's a similar character turn is that right i've not read sense and sensibility uh and that he's not he's never a jerk he's just kind of boring and upright and that's about all you'd really say about. Yeah, him. he's not the same, but there. I mean, there. Okay. There are similarities. Yeah. We've talked about Wickham, who I, I said Heath Ledger's 
actually who I imagined when I read the hmm. book the first time. But um, I'd be on board with Heath Ledger. But I really, I, I still really like the idea of Tom Hiddleston. I don't like the idea of Tom Hiddleston simply because his most famous role is as a is already as a villain, snaky type t- villain. It's, it's tipping the game, yeah. Tom Hiddleston in a perfect world where he hadn't started in the Avengers, sure, but he has started in the Avengers. So, so who do you got for that? Who do I got? Uh, let's see. I think you just want to cast someone that's attractive to us, the audience. So who would it be? Does it have to be British? He's got to have a good British accent at least. Oh, you know who else I thought would be good for Darcy is um, Michael Fassbender, I think. That's actually be. who I was thinking. But well, why do you say so? I can I remember think, his name. He's, uh, that's Steve Jobs, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I've not seen, I don't think I've ever seen a Fassbender film. X-Men? No. He played Magneto. Magneto. There's something off-putting and proud but also charming about him. Oh, I think he'd be perfect. I actually think that's a great idea. But the problem is, is he already played um, whatever that guy is in uh, the new Jane Eyre. Oh, he played Mister My Rochester. Wife, my wife is crazy yeah. guy. He plays uh, Macbeth in a new adaptation of Macbeth, right? Yeah, he does. I want to see that. He's really good. I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen him in Macbeth. He was great as Steve Jobs, and he was great as I haven't seen Magneto. Anybody that could play Steve Jobs would probably be a pretty good Darcy. I mean, yeah, that's a intense jerk, smarter than everybody type guy. Yeah, smartest guy in the room. Mm. The obvious answer that all of us are refusing to say: guy who can play the arrogant, smartest guy in the room, snob, British guy, who can take a sympathetic turn is Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh. <laughs> Huh. Yeah, that is the obvious answer, and then it's, probably someone will make a Pride and Prejudice with Benedict Cumberbatch because it's such an obvious nobody idea. Nobody want to watch it because of all the Cumber the fatigue. Cum- cumber, the Cumber fatigue. Yeah. <laughs> I would cast him as Collins. That would be funny. Just... If if he had to be in the film, if I wanted to put a headliner. Oh, I think he'd do it too. I think Cumberbatch is probably bored playing matinee idols and stuff. He'd rather play interesting character parts. Yeah. Cumberbatch might make an interesting Wickham too. He's a little old for it now, probably. But yeah. get somebody like that who's just purely smooth and the audience loves to play Wickham. Cumberbatch, you want that kind of a guy. I don't know who would play Lizzie. Karen Knightley did a pretty good job, really, yeah, in a stupid did. version. She did. She, yeah, she was. But I don't like Karen Knightley. You don't like Karen? No. Not usually. She's got those cheekbones. <laughs> Nathan prefers his women without cheekbones. <laughs> like sunken <laughs> cheeks. Hollow. Hollow. <laughs> no, I like... a waif. If you're yeah. listening to this and you're a woman and you're thinking about throwing yourself at me, I the cheekbone question is up for debate. That's just... <laughs> you don't have to go and cut them off. Right, yeah. Well... We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Let's go on a few dates, see how it works out. And if I have to, Nathan has to suggest plastic surgery, it'll come up after at least the third date. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he'll pay for it, too. <laughs> that last part's not true. <laughs> <laughs> With all the money that this podcast earns. <laughs> all right, fellas, well, that's about all the time we have. Jake, any closing thoughts on Jane Austen's masterpiece of 
manners, pride and prejudice? No. Brandon? <laughs> well, Jake has no final thoughts. I guess I don't either. <laughs> but <laughs> Is that your guys' final answer? I'd say to the guys out there, <laughs> if, right. if you've spent your life not reading Pride and Prejudice because you think it's beneath you because it's a woman's book to get over yourself, there's a lot out there that, that you're not going to read because you think it's beneath you as a man. You're not going to read poetry. You're not going to read Jane Austen. So just seriously, get over yourself and go out and read what people tell you is good <laughs> and, and enjoy it. Probably those young men aren't listening to an hour-long <coughs> podcast about Pride and Prejudice right now. But. That's probably true. Those of you listening, go out and tell them <laughs> to get over themselves. And if you're a nerdy young man that's listening to this podcast, then... Go play football or something. Probably, <laughs> you should probably uh, toss the old pigskin. Yeah. All it up. <laughs> Throw it around. <laughs> Call back. <laughs> Uh, Jake, any final thoughts about Pride and Prejudice? Um, I love the book. I loved reading it. I loved reading it a second time. I think Brandon's right earlier when he says that it's the kind of book you want to come back to. Um, if, if you're the kind of person that likes the idea of marriage, thinks you might possibly want to get married, might already be married, uh, you could do a lot worse than reading this book and absorbing a lot of the wisdom of Jane Austen about what to look for in a man or in a woman and what you must be. So I, I commend it to, uh, I think I might have said earlier in the in the show that when I was teaching a series, I read it for the first time in the middle of teaching a series on dating and relationships. And at a certain point, I wanted to just start a book club where we just went through Pride and Prejudice together because I thought it would be that helpful um, for the students I had to open up who they are, to open up their character to them, and and to expose the folly of some of the relationships that they were in at the time. I do, I would say that if I were developing a curriculum for high school students, I would, I would put it in there and make it required reading. Yes, if you're listening to this, which you are, by virtue of the fact that you hear... The fact that you just heard me say that means... <laughs> offers almost definitive proof <laughs> that you're listening to this. Uh, Jane Austen is the man. <laughs> I really like Jane Austen. I just like her. I like her as a person. I mean, she just seems fun. I hope I, hope I get to meet her in heaven. <laughs> Throw the old pigskin around. around. <laughs> no, I really do. I mean, and that is part of the fun, I think, of of reading great literature, of joining the conversation <laughs> across the ages <laughs> with people, is that uh, I get to learn from someone as funny and insightful and wonderful as Jane Austen. And that's a wonderful thing. And if you are a person listening to this podcast for some reason, that you're you're listening to this and yet you don't want to read Pride and Prejudice or you haven't read it. I don't know why you listen through this whole thing without reading it, but you should read Pride and Prejudice. It's really good. Uh.
Today's episode of The Booketing was written and produced by me, Nathan Alberson. It was performed by me, Nathan Alberson, and also my two chums, Brandon Chastine and Jacob Menzel. That is going to wrap it up as far as Pride and Prejudice goes, at least until five or ten years or whatever we do our re-reading of Pride and Prejudice, so I guess stay tuned for that. But next time... We are going to reconvene and start in on John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Our first episode will be a spoiler-free episode, in case you've never read it. But you might want to start reading it if you haven't already, so that you can then join us for the following episodes, which will be spoiler-filled. So, coming up next, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Thanks for listening, boys and girls. 